Welcome to the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair's week of podcasts featuring local, national, and international activists and authors. Due to the ongoing global pandemic, the Book Fair Collective decided to move their event online again this year. So for the second year in a row, From Embers is teaming up with the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair to release presentations over our podcast platform. Recordings of these Voices of Resistance were conducted on unceded Indigenous territories across so-called British Columbia and beyond. For more information about the book fair and a full schedule of online events this week, check out victoriaanarchistbookfair.ca and listeners in the Victoria area are encouraged to visit Camus Books at 2620 Quadra Street or online at camus.ca for anarchist publications and more. And to find out more about our regular anarchist podcast, go to fromembers.libsyn.com or simply search From Embers in your favorite podcast app. Hi, my name's Will. I'm a settler and a member of the Victoria Anarchist Book Fairs Collective, recording from unceded territories shared by the Lekwungen and Hwasainich peoples. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Wickham, a member of Kasiech, the Grizzly House, and the Gidimden clan of the Wet'suwet'en people and media manager for the Gidimden Yinta Access Point. Hello, Jen, Hadi. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Hadi. It's I, Jennifer Wickham-Sydney, a Gidimden Hazli Wet'suwet'en Thanks for having me. Thank you so much again for joining us. Uh, last year, Molly Wickham, Slato, did an interview with the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair, giving updates about Coastal GasLink's construction ramp-up during COVID-19, BC Premier John Horgan declaring that CGL employees are essential workers, and the threat CLG poses to Wedzinkwa River. Are there any recent updates that you'd like to highlight? Yes, so on September 25th, uh, Slato and allies and supporters occupied the drill pad site where Coastal GasLink plans to drill underneath Wedzinkwa. Um, We chose this time because CGL has said in their plans that they will have that section of the pipe installation completed by the end of the fourth quarter. And based on the information that we have, it takes 79 days of 24 hours a day work for them to complete that section. And in order for them to do that, they would have had to have started a weeks ago. And so folks have been holding it down and (laughs) digging in for winter um, ever since because it's really uh, starting to get chilly out on the Inta. So, um, you know, we have, we've seen surrogate officers. There have been two arrests so far very early on in the occupation. Um... Since then, we have had harassment and sabotage by the RCMP coming in, dumping out drinking water, um, locking ATV keys into a truck. Um, They put out a fire and then dumped more drinking water the other day and just generally harassing people, um, pulling people over on the Forest Service Road, giving tickets, impounding vehicles. 
all of their regular nuisance tactics, uh, trying to intimidate supporters and members that are uh, supporting our occupation at the moment. I also heard that in addition to threatening members of the camps, CGL is also threatening the heritage and archaeological sites important to the Wet'suwet'en people. Can you speak to that? Mm-hmm. So the week before the occupation of the drill pad site, they, the Coastal Gas Link contractors um, went in and bulldozed and destroyed an archaeological site where there have been over 20 artifacts found um, from two different archaeological assessments, one done in 2015 and one done in 2019. And both of the recommendations from those assessments were to avoid the area. Uh, They did not. (laughs) They said that there is no way for them to avoid the area and still build their pipeline. And so they brought in um, heavy machinery and completely bulldozed the site and uh, had an archaeologist on site to quote unquote supervise the work. Um, And so the plan that they told us about was that they would excavate 10 centimeters of soil at a time, carefully and thoroughly inspect that soil before continuing on another 10 centimeters. And that is not what was witnessed by Slato on site. The entire area was completely bulldozed, including tree stumps and bushes. And then the archeologist was theoretically um, supposed to go through this huge pile of wreckage afterwards and find any archaeological evidence, which is in, in fact legal evidence of our occupation and use of that area. Um, the report it has not officially been submitted, um, but the word from other reporters that have called this company to follow up on the work. Uh, They're saying that they did not find any more evidence or artifacts during the dig, which is not surprising given the way that they so carelessly did the work. And is this, uh, is this site on the banks of the Watsinkwa? So the archeological site is about 200 meters behind the reoccupation site at 44 kilometer at the Gidimden checkpoint and which is on at the confluence of the Lamprey Creek and Woodzinkwa. So it's not that far from Woodzinkwa and is part of a larger archaeological network of trails and village sites with a main village site being at the meeting of Lamprey Creek and Woodzinkwa. How has uh, Coastal Gan- uh, Gas Link's construction, uh, you know, at the confluence of Woodzinkwa and Lamprey Creek, affected the Inta, affected the territory, and your ability to harvest in that area? 
Well, uh, days before they bulldozed the archaeological site, they actually destroyed a hunting blind that we had in the ravine in behind our Gidimden checkpoint. Um, so they are impeding our ability to hunt and gather. They destroyed medicines and berries and everything in that entire area. The Lamprey Creek is actually named after the Lamprey Eel, which is on the species at risk list for BC. And they plan on once they have, so they've completely cleared everything, including trees, bushes, medicines, and topsoil all the way down to the creek where they plan to trench through the creek that the lamprey eels live. Mm -hmm. Speaking of uh, the management of the Inta and the territory, there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding uh, over what hereditary governance means for the Wet'suwet'en people and how the territory is organized with hereditary chiefs and support chiefs. Could you share how the self-governance system of the Wet'suwet'en works? Mm-hmm. So within the Wet'suwet'en Nation, there are five clans. Gilsehu, Lixamsu, Lixilyu, Tsayu, and Gidimden. And within each of those five clans, there's two to three house groups. And so each house group is responsible for different areas out on the Inta. So Cassia is one of three house groups within the Gidimden clan. And we are responsible for the territory where the Gidimden checkpoint is, all the way up to the Wudzinkwa, which is the boundary line between Kasiach and Unistoten territories. And um, each house chief is responsible for the management and safety of their their house group territories. And so they would traditionally have, because they can't live on all of the territories, each house has multiple territories they're responsible for, they would have supporting chiefs that would help them look after those territories. So people would actually live out on the territories um, all winter and we would only gather all together in the summertime when we would go to our fishing villages to replenish our food stores for the winter. Thank you so much for explaining that. Instead of going to the hereditary chiefs, Coastal Castlink went to the band council for approval to work on reserves. How would you contrast the Wet'suwet'en system of governance with the band council? So the Band council system is responsible for the pieces of land that the federal government quote unquote reserved, so the reservations for our people. And so there's different village sites that they pushed all of our people onto and made it a legal requirement for them to stay on. So Chief and Council is set up as an arm of the federal government. 
They have a forced system in place that mimics the federal system where there's an election every couple of years where people will vote for chief and council. The issue with industry making deals with the chief and band council system is that the band council is really only responsible for the day-to-day maintenance of the reserve. There is no reserve land that the pipeline is going through. And so the authority over the 22,000 square kilometers of Witsuit and Yinta has always been the hereditary chiefs. There was a court case one. We had a joint court case between the Witsuitan and the Gitsan nations um, against the federal government over our rights and title. And the decision of that 1997 Supreme Court case was that the court decided that the Witsuitan and the Gitsan had never relinquished their authority and jurisdiction over either of their territories. So knowing that, and knowing that the day after the decision came out and the information was accessed through an FOI by the Narwhal, and they found internal memos and emails between the different branches of the government to create a a strategy on how to circumvent the decision so that industry would still have access to our resources and it would not limit anyone extracting those resources from our territory based on this very profound decision from the Supreme Court of Canada. So how that complicates things now is that we currently have a provincial court who has issued an injunction, not taking into consideration this decision from the Supreme Court of Canada, which is a higher court than them, stating that the hereditary chiefs, not band council, but the hereditary chiefs were actually all plaintiffs in this case, are have never given up their authority and jurisdiction over our 22,000 square kilometers of Yenta. Speaking of the decisions that the federal government's made, um, specifically regarding the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, over the last year, residential schools have faced another wave of scrutiny for their role in genocide by the settler public after the report of over 215 children's graves found at the site of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School onto Kamloops Tesohipmoch territory. Can you speak to the legacies of the residential schooling system in Wet'suwet'enyinta? Yeah, so we know that the residential schools were one more tactic that the federal government employed in order to displace and dispossess Indigenous people of their territory. So the Wet'suwet'en were just as affected as any other nation in having their children stolen and sent to residential schools, mostly people from our communities went to the Lajac in Indian residential school, which is in the Northern area. Um, and, you know, we hear the stories we hear of family members, you know, and friends and relatives like sending their children to residential school 
and those children never coming home and them never hearing whatever happened to them. There was no reason given. They just didn't come home. Um, that, of course, you know, was intentional. And we now know um, it's, it should be common knowledge that the reason for that was to kill the Indian in the child and dispossess them of their language and their culture and their traditions because the government of Canada at the time knew, has always known, that if we are raising our children as Wet'suwet'en people, we will always defend our land because of our relationship to the, ter- the Yenta itself, to manage the animals and the water and the berries and the medicine patches, you know, and those relationships that were built over thousands of years, we have a responsibility to that. And they knew that if children were raised in their homes, learning their language, and with that connection to the Inta, that they would always be fighting us for the resources that they wanted access to. And when it was apparent to them that taking children and sending them to school was not effective enough, uh, that's when we saw the 60 scoop and the removal and theft of our children at even younger ages. And that continues today. The number of children in care of MCFD um, is higher for Indigenous children than the rates of children sent to residential school. And the residential school that you mentioned north of the territory that most Wet'suwet'en um, children went to, is uh, is that the same school that CLG sort of retrofitted to be a accommodation for their workforce? Yes. So currently the former Lajac Indian Residential School is now the grounds for a man camp. And, you know, we also... Um, when all of the graves were found um, in Kamloops, so many of my own family members attended because at the time, that was the only residential school that offered senior grades. So the senior high school grades where most of the residential schools in the province only went up to grade seven. And so a lot of family members that went to Lajac were then transferred to Kamloops. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a really emotional time. And we actually went and held a ceremony with, with the other northern communities at the former site. And it was really um, devastating to see all the man camp trailers and the infrastructure that they're building on that site and possibly over the bones of some of our family members. I wanted to ask about the solidarity between um, Indigenous peoples that you've experienced uh, over the course of this resistance. Um, We know that the struggle on Wet'suwet'en Yinta has sparked mass solidarity mobilizations like last year's Shutdown Canada campaign that saw Indigenous peoples and settler supporters from across the continent engaging in solidarity actions 
Can you speak to the solidarity shared between the Wet'suwet'en clans and houses as well as with other Indigenous nations? Solidarity and allyship between Indigenous people is such a beautiful thing. And it's so powerful because I think we recognize the shared history of colonization. We recognize the trauma and the pain and the loss and grief in each other and our experiences. And I think it was, it's, it, it's not a stretch. It's not a, a jump for other nations across Turtle Island to look at the, what's happening now in Wet'suwet'en and recognize that in their own history and in their own daily lives so many people from other nations that don't have access to clean drinking water, that don't have access to hunting grounds, that don't have access to medicines and berry patches. You know, I have personally talked to people that have never tasted a huckleberry. (laughs) They don't have berry patches that they can go to every year and harvest. They don't have medicines that they can go out and get. They have to travel hours and hours and hours to go moose hunting. Um, They have waterways that they can't even swim in, let alone drink. And so I think that part of the reason why Indigenous people are standing up in support of what we're doing is because they recognize that and they have explicitly told us that if they knew how bad the destruction would have been, was going to be on their territory and how much they would lose, they would have fought harder and for us to never give up. And so there are many nations that are willing to stand up and how has COVID impacted resistance at the Gidimden access point and life on the Wet'suwet'en Yinta? It's been over 18 months since the pandemic started. Uh, I imagine the protocols have changed since um, supporters started coming up to camp and that you know it's made uh, life more difficult than um, the RCMP and uh, CGL have been making it. We definitely have changed protocols during the pandemic. So we have uh, very strict COVID-19 precautions that we follow uh, when folks are coming to camp. Um, People are isolated from each other for 14 days before they can join into um, the main camp pod. So we do pods. (laughs) And it has certainly hindered people's sense of freedom to move. And so there has been a lot of concern from supporters uh, around uh, rates of COVID in their area or in our area. And right now, um, you know, we did see over last winter, we did see a huge spike of uh, COVID cases here in the north. 
um, and particularly within the CGL man camps. Uh, they were actually ordered by the provincial health officer to uh, shut down uh, for a while, which gave a bit of reprieve to our communities, to our land defenders, and as well as our medical systems. Uh, that didn't last as long as it should have. Uh, in my opinion, they should be completely shut down. Uh, we know from being out on the land and seeing all the workers, it's the majority of them have Alberta license plates. We know that a lot of workers are coming in from out of province and even out of the country. Um, we know that, for example, in the Burns Lake section of the pipe, there are people on the man camp from Italy, for as one example. Um, so we're definitely seeing an increase of COVID-19 right now in the province. And I don't think it's a huge jump to speculate that that is from the huge increase of COVID-19 in uh, so-called Alberta and the workers that are migrating in from there to come to work in these man camps. Um, all of the hospitals in the north right now are over capacity. They're flying COVID-19 patients from the north down to Vancouver and Victoria to the hospitals. Um, they are overrun. In Smithers in particular, the, co the COVID cases are really high. We're seeing it affect our small communities. Um, we recently lost in our own family uh, a matriarch. My grandmother's sister uh, recently passed away from COVID-19. And, you know, there's just more and more reports every day of people that are testing positive in, in, in our area and in our communities. And it's really devastating because it's totally preventable. You know, if the workers weren't coming in and they weren't bringing COVID and they weren't working side by side with other people in our community, if they just took the precautions that are necessary for a global pandemic, our people would not be dying. Has your community received uh, enough vaccinations that they've needed as well? Or have those been um, in short supply? All of the people that I know of so far that have passed from COVID-19 have been double vaccinated. It makes it really difficult to do this work when our families and our communities are grieving so much loss. And then to also be fighting for our lives and our yinta at the same time is difficult to say the least. Um, I know that everyone is just as sick of the pandemic as we are, um, but it does add a lot of layers of complications as far as people coming to support us. Um, and we are really diligent about ensuring everybody's safety um, and 
Coastal GasLink and the man camps are not held to any of the same kind of standards that even our local citizens are. Uh, for example, there is a new restriction within Northern Health that if anyone in your household is not vaccinated, you're on lockdown for two weeks, except to go buy groceries. And I know from speaking to uh, an employee for one of the contractors for Coastal Gas Link, that they are not required to show a vaccination passport to, to, that they are double vaccinated in order to be in the man camps. So they're not held to the same standards that even our own communities are. We've been talking a lot about struggle and resistance and the um, pain and grief that, that's happened to both the community and the Yinta. Can you tell me about the joyous experiences that come from living uh, what's when law and uh, enacting uh, the jurisdiction of your nation and embracing the sovereignty of uh, your peoples? Absolutely. And the first thing that comes to mind is my five-year-old niece. Uh, she has grown up out on the Inta. Uh, my sister and her family have been living out at Hludespin um, since 2014. Uh, for the majority of my nephew's life and for all of my two nieces' lives. And um, the way that uh, Yet Tahiez knows the Inta and behaves on the Inta and projects her future on the Inta is so beautiful. She, in behind the Gidemden checkpoint um, occupation site, she started to build her own cabin. <laughs> and she set it up with a chair and teacups. And then Slato witnessed her digging a hole and she asked her, what are you doing? And yet Tahiez said, well, I'm digging an outhouse. My cabin needs an outhouse. <laughs> and she knows who she is as a Witsuwaden person. And she knows that that's her territory. And if she it wants to build her own home out there, that she has every right to do that. She knows where the berry patches are. She knows what medicines are there. She is out hunting with her dad and her mom and harvesting animals and doing ceremony. And, you know, she prays for the people and talks to the ancestors and to me that is really what it's all about it's about our children and our future grandchildren being able to live as Wet'suwet'en people out on the land and um I don't even remember what question you asked but that's that's what I can think of that's what came to mind right away is my beautiful five-year-old niece um, <laughs> digging herself a little outhouse beside her cabin. <laughs> oh, that's precious. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's beautiful. Um, 
uh, I uh, wanted to ask um, what sort of projects are currently underway at the camp that you'd like to share? I remember last year Slato mentioned the construction of trapping houses at the access point. What other um, initiatives are uh, underway? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, before the occupation of uh, Coyote Camp, um, we are almost completed uh, two tiny houses at La- at Lamprey Creek, uh, formerly the Lamprey Creek Rec Site, um, it, that have been outfitted with uh, solar power, and um, we're just finishing the interior of it so that Get em Den clan members have a place, a comfortable place to come and stay out on the Inta. We also have plans to build a feast hall out on the territory at the direction of our Denise Was. Um, we have um, constructed a, a large uh, indoor kitchen um, that was formerly inside a kind of small green tent. <laughs> Um, so we're pretty excited about that. <laughs> um, and of course, you know, the, the plan and the dream is to build our village sites out on the Inta. The, we have um, an elder uh, from Cassia um, that wants to build a home out on the territory. We have a young couple with... Uh, a family that wants to build a home out on the Inta. And so those are projects that are in the future and in the, in the works um, to happen. And, you know, we're, we're doing everything uh, that we can to reoccupy our lands so that these kinds of projects will not be able to bulldoze through our Inta in the future. Those projects sound fantastic. Uh, what kind of support are you looking for right now for people who can't necessarily get up to the INTA? Uh, what can they do to uh, ensure successful and ongoing resistance? So if folks are not able to personally come and put boots on the ground out on the territory, um, uh, maybe they have some financial means that they could contribute. We have had a couple of folks contact us and offer to pay for flights for people that, or gas and ferry costs for people that are able to come out to the territory. They want to sponsor Indigenous people. Um, That's always an option. Um, We, you know, uh, during the pandemic, building supplies have increased in cost. Uh, sometimes triple uh, for some things such as like plywood and lumber. Um, So financial contributions are always helpful. Um, We also have a couple of campaigns happening right now. So um, uh, we have submitted a letter to 35 of the investors and financiers of the Coastal Gas Link and the LNG Canada projects 
Um, so that information is available on our website. There's also a media kit available so that folks can amplify that message. Um, we have different actions on our website on the, I believe it's called What Can You Do? Or Actions to Take. Sorry, it's escaping my mind at the moment. But all the information is on our website at yintaaccess.com. Um, there are, of course, always contractors that um, have offices in multiple cities um, that can be targeted on October 29th. There is an international campaign against RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada. And we will be holding an action out on the territory and are encouraging folks to sign up and organize within their own communities. Um, we, of course, always are asking folks to follow, like, share, and amplify all of our social media posts um, and really keep an eye on everything that's happening on the ground, um, you know, in in the event of enforcement that happens against our people and our people are, are remo removed from our territory, of course, um, solidarity actions will be called for. Um, we really want to keep the pressure on Coastal Gas Link, on the investors, on the contractors, because they do not have the free prior and informed consent of our people to be doing the work. So as much pressure as we can put on them, the better. Nanusta and Jennifer, thank you. Um, the Victoria Anarchist Book Fair Collective really appreciates you sharing your time and knowledge with us. We hope that this interview contributes to the mobilization of resistance against CGL, the RCMP, and the settler state going forward. Um, thank you for as well sharing about the future projects, and I hope that you know helps get people inspired to support and get boots on the ground up in the Inta. Kebi Masai for having me. Sunday. I hate it. Let's check Facebook. Ugh, Facebook. What is this? Food not bombs? Cook yummy food? Meet cool people. Stop food waste. No experience necessary. Not Bombs is serving free meals to everyone, Sundays, 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen territory. Come eat with us, drop off food, or support our kitchen. We are looking for volunteers to help chopping, cooking, and serving food, or to help with computer tasks. Check Food Not Bombs Victoria on Facebook to find out where we cook. For inquiries about volunteering, and to join our listserv, please mail to vic 
fnb at lists.resist.ca or check out our Facebook page, Food Not Bombs Victoria. Food Not Bombs, free meals every Sunday at 4 p.m. at Centennial Square on unceded Lekwungen Territory. Free the food!